Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 4.16, The Boston Massacre. Although the threats of open warfare against the British at the rumor of the military occupation of Boston had not come to pass, throughout 1769 and into 1770, tensions did remain high. Well, nobody was shooting at each other, at least not yet. That does not mean that everybody was getting along either. This week, we are going to trace that growing pressure inside of the city, as it leads to one of the most defining moments of the entire imperial crisis. With the arrival of the 14th and 29th Regiment into Boston during the fall of 1768, the most immediate question turned to just where everybody was going to sleep. I had mentioned this briefly back in episode 4.14. However, the debate over quartering would quickly become the primary way that the colonists would resist the incoming British army. This really is nothing new. We have been talking for a bit about questions over quartering, and indeed New York's resistance is part of the reason why the ministry back in London had entrenched so deeply over the Townsend Acts. When the British army arrived in Boston Harbor during the early fall of 1768, they were under instructions from Thomas Gage to split into two groups. One of these groups would make camp on Castle Island, with the rest setting up quarters in Boston proper. Castle William, the fort on Castle Island, had decent accommodations, having been nicely updated back during the French and Indian War. Command of this mission had been put into the hands of Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple, who, upon arrival, quickly took to the task of securing the remainder of his men, a place to stay within the town of Boston itself. Dalrymple approached the council and quickly learned what Francis Bernard had been dealing with all along. The council, as it stood, had no real issue with the troops staying off on Castle Island. In fact, the council supported the idea wholeheartedly, and fully believed that Castle Island is where everybody should stay. Now, I do want to make a quick point about the geography here. Castle Island today is not really an island, but rather it is a peninsula. In 1769, though, it was indeed an island that was not connected to the mainland. This is important because the actual goal of the council here was that they did not want to have royal troops hanging out in Boston proper. The council was falling back on the 1765 Quartering Act, which stated that troops should first be placed in existing barracks before they were moved into taverns and inns. Furthermore, should those taverns and inns become necessary, the Crown would be required to pay for the accommodations. Dalrymple was not at all amused by this. He had his orders to put men in Boston proper, and he intended to do just that. Annoyed by the colonial resistance, Dalrymple, who again was determined to follow his orders from Gage, went ahead and disregarded those orders entirely. Although Gage had said for there to be one regiment to Castle Island and the rest in the town, he decided that nobody would be camping on Castle Island, and moved everybody into the center of Boston. Still, with nowhere to actually sleep troops, they ended up camping out in Boston Commons and taking over Faneuil Hall. 
making matters worse is that additional troops and regiments continued to come into Boston, eventually with there being four regiments inside the city, thus increasing the need for lodging. General Gage came to Boston personally to attempt to handle the situation, but found little more success than had Dalrymple. Eventually, the troops would find more suitable lodgings. However, this only came about when Gage and Dalrymple agreed to give in and pay the high rents. Boston colonists, happy to pitch in and make a profit, were able to find some space to set up barracks. The battle over quartering the troops does a fantastic job of laying the groundwork for what was going to come. This was not a comfortable coexistence for anybody. The colonists viewed the army as being a taboo, something unfit to be placed among free citizens of the British Empire. However, importantly, it is not like the soldiers in Boston were all that happy about it either. They were soldiers. They had signed up for the army because they had wanted an adventure. They wanted to go fight for glory and to distinguish themselves as heroes. Policing a bunch of provincials was certainly not what they had in mind. Fear of violence was also not far from anybody's consciousness. Benjamin Franklin wrote to Joseph Galloway, upon learning of the troops in Boston, that he worried that the present peace was going to be short-lived. Franklin feared that something minor may set off a tumult, and that once blood was drawn, there is no telling how far out of hand things may become. Per John Adams, having troops in Boston likewise forced the population to choose sides. No longer was this a theoretical debate over the rights of the colonists, as British subjects. Even if you were not affected by the Stamp Act or the Townsend duties, having troops living amongst you? Well, that was something that would force people off the fence. The people of Boston were quick to divide into camps, both opposing and supporting the British. We are, in a few minutes, going to reach the events of March 5th, 1770. Yet, it would be incorrect to state that the Boston Massacre itself was the first time that there was violence between the soldiers and the Americans during the occupation. Throughout the occupation prior to the massacre itself, there had been other clashes. In what I'm sure will be a totally shocking revelation, soldiers often enjoyed having a drink or two, or sometimes ten. Annoyed over having to play police, alcohol lowered the soldiers' inhibitions, which in turn resulted in the occasional drunken brawl. Further infuriating the citizens of Boston, and reinforcing their feelings on why armies should not live amongst a free and civilized people, is that there was a noticeable rise in the amount of harassment and sexual assault among Boston's women. This is to say nothing of the general back-and-forth insults being thrown between the two groups, which, well, nowhere near as serious as a sexual assault, certainly did great at the increasingly frayed nerves of both the colonists and the soldiers alike. In one notable incident, an army officer, James Wilson, encouraged a small group of slaves to go on and rebel against their owners. Although slavery in Boston by this point was dying out, it was not dead yet. We have talked several times on this podcast already about the fear that societies lived in of the possibility of a slave uprising. Even the mere suggestion of it was going to get everybody up on edge. 
Wilson would state that he was not really trying to start a slave rebellion, and that he had just really been drunk that night. Yet the damage was done and everybody was that much more tense. Colonists often turned to the legal system in order to interfere with the British. Using a seldom enforced law that said if a person convicted of theft could not pay three times the value of an item taken, they could be sold into indentured servitude. In fact, with any such crime, the Boston courts began taking a far harsher approach than was custom. As the summer of 1769 rolled in, Governor Bernard felt increasingly hopeless. Although the worst excesses of the Boston radicals had been curbed by the arrival of British troops, it was impossible to ignore the growing friction between the two groups. Despite this, though, other than the occasional fistfight, no real blood had yet been spilled. That June, Thomas Gage decided that four regiments were no longer necessary to control the city, and pulled two back. Unbeknownst to the colonists, early discussions were underway to discuss the full withdrawal of troops from Boston. Francis Bernard, thoroughly defeated by this point, also saw his opening and took the opportunity to get out of Boston and return to London. Following his departure on August 1st, 1769, Thomas Hutchinson would take up his duties. Although Hutchinson was not yet ready for all the troops to leave, and he made his position known, things were looking up during the summer of 1769, and everybody was feeling cautiously optimistic that the troops would manage to get out of Boston without any major clashes. Bernard had his fears, of course, but he was on a ship on his way back to London. The radical elements in Boston surely were not just laying down and giving in to British incursions. Samuel Adams had placed his focus on non-importation, including dragging those not getting on board before the Boston Town meeting for a good dose of public shaming. Adams enjoyed a good amount of success doing this, and had, by that summer, gotten the merchants to agree to a strict non-importation agreement set to last until the start of 1770. As Adams was working to tighten the screws on the merchants, who were still importing British goods, a packet of reports from Bernard and the custom agents arrived. This is all going down in the middle of August, so just a few weeks after Bernard had left. Of particular interest, especially to James Otis, were letters from customs commissioners John Robinson and Henry Holton back to London. These letters did not portray Otis in a good light at all. Otis, unfortunately, did not have a thick skin in this instance. There were attempts to mediate the situation, to get everybody off the cliff. Samuel Adams personally stepped in and met with both Holton and Robinson, alongside the aggrieved Otis. None of this, however, was enough to assuage the hurt feelings of James Otis. Otis, along with Adams, had for a while at this point been working on a war of words in the Boston Gazette. From there, Otis launched a series of scathing attacks. These were not your normal attacks either. Even those close to Otis recognized that he was taking things too far. At one point, Otis wrote of his natural right to break John Robinson's head. Otis was clearly in a bad place mentally here and on September 5th, it was about to get much worse. 
James Otis has always been somewhat erratic. More than once during the course of this show, we have seen him take wild and completely unforeseen turns in his own position. However, the James Otis of these few weeks was far more unhinged than what we have seen before. On the evening of September 5th, Otis made his way to the British Coffee House. Going there in the first place was a strange move for Otis, as this particular coffee house was a well-known hangout for the British Army officers and customs officials. You know, the exact people who absolutely despised the radical element inside of Boston. Otis, with a nifty new walking cane in hand, strolled into the coffee house, much to the surprise and concern of everybody in the room. Otis found the man he was looking for, John Robinson, and promptly demanded satisfaction. Now, neither man was looking for a duel here, which was illegal anyway. But they did agree to take matters outside and have a fist fight. Before the two men were able to get outside, Robinson reached in and tweaked Otis's nose, something that was deeply insulting by 18th century standards. Otis, at this point, pushed back at Robinson with his cane, and the two men were officially fighting. After a few minutes of sword fighting with their respective canes, Robinson too was carrying a cane, likely for just this kind of meeting with Otis, men looking for a fist fight stepped in and took away the canes. The people wanted a fist fight, and they were going to get it. Unfortunately for him, James Otis had picked a very unfriendly place for a fight. Robinson was not the only person in there itching to smash in James Otis's face. Pretty quickly, a far larger brawl had broken out. In the ensuing bar fight, Otis received a serious strike to the head that cut him down to the bone. John Gridley, a friend to Otis, was passing by when he heard the disturbance and was able to drag the injured Otis out before the crowd beat him to death. For his trouble, Gridley likewise received a serious beating. Earlier historical accounts placed the injuries received by Otis that night in the coffee house as being the catalyst for his mental decline and being passed by Samuel Adams as the leader of the radical element. However, the belief now is that Otis had been in decline for a while by this point, and that the star of Samuel Adams had long been on the rise. The coffeehouse brawl did not change a trajectory that was already well-forged. James Otis had not been well for a while, regardless of him getting beaten to a bloody pulp at a coffeehouse. Despite the declining mental health of James Otis, the Boston Radicals were not about to let such a golden opportunity slip from their hands. In fact, James Otis himself would paint the entire thing as a premeditated attempt to assassinate him, conveniently forgetting that he was the one who had walked into a coffeehouse full of people who hated his guts with the full intention of picking a fight with Robinson. John Rowe, a prominent Boston merchant and amongst the biggest rabble-rousers, published the next day about the horrors of what had happened to poor James Otis. Samuel Adams used the occasion to double down on his preferred method of resistance, placing additional pressure upon those merchants who were still on the fence about joining in 
with the non-importation agreement. Those in opposition to the Boston Radicals did not stand idly by during this either. John Maine, the printer of the Boston Chronicle, would fight back against the likes of Adams and Otis by publishing the names of all the good adherents to the non-importation agreement who were actually violating it. With access to the customs reports, he was able to throw around damning accusations against the local merchants. Among the notable people that he called out was none other than John Hancock. Hancock denied the allegations, of course, arguing that all of his imports were permitted under the agreement. These attacks did not gain mean any popularity amongst the locals who, on October 28th, ambushed him. Mean was able to escape relatively unharmed. However, the angry crowd did manage to capture George Gaylor, who they promptly tarred and feathered, believing him to be Mean's informant. There had been a cautious optimism during those early summer months of 1769. With troops pulling out and rumors that soon all of the troops would leave, there was a moment where it seemed as though the city was going to avoid the worst scenario. However, the events of the late summer and into that fall made those hopes look like little more than smoke. Between Otis and now Maine, everybody was on edge as a palpable tension filled the air moving into 1770. Outright intimidation was quickly becoming the most effective way to enforce non-importation. This filtered all the way down to Thomas Hutchinson himself, whose sons were openly violating the agreement. An angry mob threatening to tear down a warehouse owned by the family was enough to help them see the light. This period of months from the end of 1769 through the beginning of 1770 marked a new and terrifying time. In January, Theophilus Lilly published in the Boston Newsletter an attack on the radicals, calling them out for what he sensed to be hypocrisy. Per Lilly, he would rather be a slave to the royal government, where at least he knew what he was dealing with, as opposed to the hundreds of men in the Sons of Liberty, who were now effectively the ruling power within the city. On February 22nd, an angry crowd gathered at Lily's shop, where they accused him of being an importer. When a friend of Lily's, one Ebenezer Richardson, attempted to disperse the crowd, it just made the crowd go after him instead. With Richardson now holed up inside of his house, the group demanded that he come out. With Richardson having absolutely no plans to go out of his house, a brief standoff occurred. That was broken up when the crowd began breaking his windows. Richardson, in response, fired a gun into the angry crowd. A handful of men were injured. However, far more serious was the 11-year-old Christopher Snyder, who was shot in the chest. He would die shortly thereafter in a house down the street. The crowd, still being held back by Richardson and a supporter, now swarmed his house and eventually gained access by breaking through a wall. Richardson, despite remaining defiant, realized that surrendering to the angry mob which did include members carrying a noose, probably was not a great idea. Richardson likely knew that he was going to be taken into custody, but wished for it to come from a British official, 
and not from the bloodthirsty crowd. It was eventually William Molyneux, a member of the Sons of Liberty, who stepped in and saved Richardson's life, likely wanting him to be executed legally rather than torn apart that night in the streets. Not that the crowd simply backed down. Rather, they simply resisted killing Richardson. Instead, they captured him, they beat him, they dragged him through the streets to a magistrate who stuck him in jail until the next meeting of the court on March 13th. As all of this was going on, the young Snyder boy died just a few houses down from where he had been shot. Following an autopsy by Joseph Warren, the cause of death was pinned directly onto Richardson. The angry crowd, not really having calmed down, did make a second attempt to get Richardson from the jail, with the plan being to lynch him. Ultimately, the leaders of the radical faction were able to get control of the situation, not wanting Richardson killed in the street, as he was worth far more to them alive than dead. The death of the young Snyder boy drew outrage from the colonists of Boston. Ever since the troops had arrived in the city over a year before, this had been their worst fear. And now it was realized. Of course, the troops really did not have anything to do with this. It was a customs worker in Richardson that shot the boy, not the soldiers. However, that fact mattered little in the heated atmosphere. Samuel Adams fully understood what the death of Snyder meant for his radicals, and he was not about to allow this golden opportunity to slip through his hands. Rather than fomenting a riot, Adams planned and paid for a funeral. If this battle in the colonies had become a battle of propaganda, the death of Snyder was a rallying cry against British tyranny. The funeral was nothing short of a spectacle. Thomas Hutchinson would remark that if the Sons of Liberty could have brought the boy back to life, they would have declined and gone forward with their funeral. The funeral took place on February 26. Hundreds of school children marched in pairs. Everywhere, there were banners and slogans referencing the murder of an innocent boy. 2,000 people came out for the service. The procession stretched for over half a mile, from the Liberty Tree to the burial plot at the old Granary Cemetery. Those who witnessed the funeral remarked regularly that it was the largest in American history to that point. For the Sons of Liberty, it marked a chance to pin actual blood on the crisis. Not simply the blood of some radical leader, either. James Otis getting his skull cracked open was useful, of course. However, nobody could argue that Otis was innocent. However, for the British trying to get control over an increasingly rebellious Boston, the death of an innocent child was something that could not easily be swept away. This kid was not some rebel. He was not a member of the Sons of Liberty. He was 11. In the days following the funeral, a war of words broke out in the Boston Gazette. By the time that the morning of March 5th rolled around, this had not yet changed. The paper was so filled with angry remonstrances towards the British that they lacked the room to print them all. It was the story dominating the city. Throughout the city, a general unrest spread. 
fights over the course of the next week became commonplace. On March 2nd, a brawl broke out down near the docks between the rope makers and the soldiers. Fights over the course of a week in between the funeral and March 4th were a common occurrence as anger radiated out into the streets. March 4th, a Sunday, saw things settle down for the first time since the funeral. Yet nobody was under any illusion that the civil strife that had gripped Boston had yet run its course. The next day, Monday, March 5th, 1770, began with rumors of more unrest, but little else. Nobody knew when the day began that by the time it ended, the entire imperial crisis that had gripped the colonies since 1765 would enter a new and far more dangerous phase. The night of March 5th saw small gatherings and some sporadic fights in the streets. Nothing appears to have been specifically planned for the night of the 5th. While there had likely been some planning for events the previous week, the people gathering on March 5th came together organically. At around 8 p.m., there was a small gathering near the Customs House on King Street, who struck primarily by roaming around menacingly while shouting insults at the British officers. The night was cold, with snow piled up on the ground. A large snowstorm had rolled through on February 24th, and now, over a week later, most of the snow had been compacted into ice, large chunks of which had broken apart and littered the street. Back at the customs house, a private named Hugh White heard the disturbance. White heard Edward Garrick abusively taunting the officer. White, seeking to take control of the situation, strode over and struck Garrick with his musket near his ear to remind him of his place. The blow dazed Garrick and left him crying out in pain. You see, Garrick was not a grown man. Rather, he was an apprentice for a wig maker and, importantly, was only 13 years old. We are only a week removed from the murder of an 11-year-old. And now, at the hands of a British soldier, a 13-year-old was bleeding from a head wound in the street. Now, to be clear, much of the rabble was indeed made up of boys and young men. It is not as though the British had some kind of a vendetta against teenagers. It is just that there happened to be a lot of them causing the ruckus. Word of the attack on Garrick spread and quickly the crowd near the customs house began to swell. With the violence that had gripped Boston over the past week, a large number of the men and boys in the crowd had come out specifically looking for a fight and were thus carrying with them clubs. The crowd that was now gathering were making White very aware of their feelings about him and had now taken to throwing open curses at him. Hugh White, rather than backing down, threw threats back towards the now-assembled crowd. This is when the crowd decided that hurling insults was alone not sufficient, and started picking up chunks of ice and frozen snowballs, and hurling those at White as well. White, at this point, was forced to move towards the doors of the customs house, where he did what he could to stave off the crowd. White at this point knew that he was, in fact, in very real danger. The crowd made their position very clear, 
as they were shouting, kill him. White was banging on the door of the customs house. However, nobody was opening the door. Leaving White standing out there, dangerously exposed, while he was being hit with chunks of ice. Down the street, Captain Thomas Preston could see the now rapidly growing crowd. Preston seemed to be well aware of the danger that was building, and did not want to march out and make things worse. Really, this did seem to be the official stance of the army that night. Throughout Boston, there were multiple pockets of violence. Officers were busy reassuring the people that they had no plans to engage the crowd, and that they were going to remain in their barracks. The British troops recognized that the situation was deteriorating and did not want to be the cause of it becoming a full-fledged riot. Better to let the crowd tire itself out than to make a show of force. Unfortunately for Preston, any hope that the crowd would just grow bored and disperse on its own soon went right out the window. The crowd was not thinning out. It was indeed steadily growing. The situation became much worse when church bells began to toll, indicating that there was a fire on King Street. Now, to be clear, it is unlikely that anybody actually thought that there was a fire. Either way, fire was a substantial threat to the town, and the bells told the residents that they needed help getting control over the imaginary blaze. This drew all of those gatherings of people in the streets towards the customs house. It drew people from their homes, whom up to that point were not getting involved in the disturbance that night. And now, they were in the very middle of it. Some people showed up, believing that they were actually there to fight a fire, bringing buckets along with them. These had been people who had largely stayed out of the fray and had been in their homes. However, others seemed to have gotten the memo that there was no fire and instead brought clubs and bats that were used for a game called Tipcat. By 9 p.m., it had become clear to Preston that the crowd was not going to disperse, and that Private White was probably now at risk of being torn limb from limb. The plan was for a small detachment of six privates and one corporal to march out, grab White, and then return back to the main guardhouse. Preston was in a very tight spot here and had very limited things that he could do. Nobody from the customs house had requested help, so there was a question of whether or not Preston even had the authority to move out. Should Preston do nothing, however, the crowd was likely going to kill White. The best option, therefore, was a rescue mission. As the group of seven set out, Preston making a last-minute decision to join the march, they knew well how tenuous the situation was. As they marched, they were interrupted by a local bookseller who had been attempting to talk the crowd off the ledge and stop them from killing White. The bookseller, a man named Henry Knox, told Preston that should his troops open fire on the crowd, the mob would kill them. Preston informed Knox that he understood the situation before continuing on towards White. By all accounts, getting to Private White was not terribly difficult. However, upon reaching the man, the crowd was less interested in allowing them to escape. 
There remains continued debate over whether or not Preston could have just forced his way back through the crowd. However, likely not wanting to further inflame the situation, Preston decided not to just shove his way back through. Instead, he ordered his men into something of a semicircle, with their backs towards the sentry house. Their right flank was protected from a hitching post, their left flank from that sentry box where Private White had begun, and the customs house was protecting their backs. Preston, wanting to prevent the crowd from surging forward into his position, ordered that the men load their muskets. What followed was a tense 15-minute standoff. The soldiers kept their muskets held low, but they were loaded and pointed at the crowd. A crowd that continued to pelt the men with chunks of ice, while screams of kill them radiated through that cold night. A handful of men in the crowd did realize just how dangerous this entire situation was, and attempted to warn Preston, much as Knox had some minutes earlier. Preston moved just in front of his men, doing what he could to get the crowd to back down and leave. However, signs were now pointing towards the crowd becoming even more violent. Richard Palms approached Preston through the crowd to inquire as to whether or not the muskets were loaded, to which Preston confirmed that they were. Palms asked Preston if he was planning to fire on the crowd. Preston assured him that the answer was no. As Preston was speaking with Palms, Private Hugh Montgomery fell to the ground. It is unclear what caused Montgomery to fall. He may have been struck by ice that knocked him down. He may have been hit with ice, staggered backwards, and then slipped and fell from the ice on the ground. It is possible that Montgomery may have been hit with a club. Either way, Hugh Montgomery was now on his back on the ground, his musket knocked out of his hand. Montgomery, in pain and enraged by the blow, stood up, collected his musket, and said, Damn you! Fire! Before pulling the trigger on his gun, firing into the crowd. Following that first shot, there was a pause. Up towards the line, there was a struggle where Palms attempted to hit Montgomery with his club, before Montgomery tried to stab him with his bayonet. As everybody stood around taking in what had just occurred, a moment that must have seemed to stretch over an eternity came to an end, when the other men began pulling their triggers. The pause in reality was short. However, there does seem to be a general consensus that Preston could have ordered the men to stand down. In Preston's defense, the evidence also shows that he likewise did not order the second volley to be fired, and that the men were at this point acting of their own accord. Following the second volley, Preston seems to have regained his awareness of the situation and began shouting at the men to cease fire. Throughout the crowd, the scene was horrifying. One description of a man shot in the head describes the extensive damage that had been done to his skull. Others had been shot in the chest. All around, people were bleeding and injured. Three men lay on the ground dead. Two more would die in the coming days. As the smoke cleared, a total of 11 colonists had been shot. Immediately following the shooting, the crowd mulled around a bit, trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Many had not realized until they had come upon the wounded and the dead that the British had actually fired live rounds. 
as this realization began to dawn upon the crowd, attention shifted promptly towards attending to the wounded and dealing with their dead. The dense crowd that had formed around the customs house did finally disperse, with many heading home while others went throughout the town, spreading news of the massacre. Many others moved away from the immediate scene, and then just wandered around almost aimlessly in smaller groups as they tried to comprehend what had just taken place. Preston and his men were able at this point to return to the main guard post to reflect on what had just occurred for them. The remainder of the night of March 5th was people discussing what had just happened and spreading the news throughout Boston. Well, there was not another mass gathering that night. There were British troops who were unfortunate enough to be outside as people made their way back through the town. Those troops who ran into the shocked and angry onlookers found themselves the target of both verbal and often physical abuse. Rumors back near the site of the shooting had Preston worried that a large group of potentially thousands were planning to move towards his location. Upon learning of what happened, Thomas Hutchinson moved quickly and went to the scene of the massacre, where large numbers of people were still milling around. Hutchinson first spoke with Preston before he went up on a balcony to address the obviously rattled crowd personally. Hutchinson assured the crowd that a full investigation into what had happened was going to take place and that he would enforce the law. Hutchinson pleaded with those below to return home. The remaining crowd, however, now being led nominally by William Molyneux, refused to leave unless the troops went first. Hutchinson relayed the message to the men's commanding officer, who decided that it probably was not the worst idea to get out of the area. With the troops pulling back, the remaining people gathered on King Street finally went home. It would be a sleepless night for Thomas Hutchinson. After the most immediate risk of a full-scale open rebellion was diffused, Hutchinson quickly turned to the business at hand. At 2 a.m., now on March 6, arrest warrants were issued for the men involved. At 3 a.m., Preston himself was taken into custody. As everybody caught their collective breath and reflected on the events of the night, the one thing that was abundantly clear to Everybody was that everything had changed. Next time, we are going to pick up right where we are leaving off on March the 6th. Boston is going to have to come to grips with what happened. And next time, we are going to spend our episode looking at both the immediate reaction as well as the trials. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the aftermath of the Boston Massacre.